0: A character witness in a criminal trial is defined as a person who testifies on behalf of another person, usually a criminal defendant, as to that person's good moral qualities, both through a personal knowledge of the witness and the person's reputation in the community. That's the legal definition. Of character witness. But this morning we're going to consider together with the prophet Jonah as our star witness what kind of character is the best witness for Jesus Christ? The best witness for the power of the gospel to change people's lives inside and out. If you get nothing else from today's message, from Jonah chapter 1, verses 7 through 17, I really want you to get a grip on this two-part statement that's printed in your notes. The statement is your character, your witness, will either be enhanced by the consistency of your walk with God or extinguished by the carelessness of walking your own way. That's the choice we have to make as God's people. Do I want my witness to be enhanced by my consistent walk with God? Or am I willing to let my witness, my light, be extinguished by being careless about walking my own way? We learned last Sunday that when we walk the wrong way, we miss out on God's perfect will. We also learned that when we walk the wrong way, the going isn't always easy. In fact, it's hard. The way of the transgressor is hard, the Bible says. And we also learned, finally, that our lives affect others negatively when we walk our own way. We're going to see in the text this morning, chapter 1 of Jonah, verses 7 to the end of the chapter, how that gets played out in the life of Jonah and what his reputation was like before these ancient sailors on whose ship he was, for a time, sound asleep. First of all, let's look at some questions that came out of a conversation between these sailors and Jonah. Look at verse 7. Each man said to his mate, Come and let us cast lots, so that we may learn on whose account this calamity has struck us. Let's reset the story. Especially if we were not here last week. Jonah is a prophet of God to Israel. His ministry spanned the time in between Elisha that famous Old Testament prophet who worked a lot of miracles for the Lord, and Amos, who has a book named after him in the Bible. Jonah is right in the middle of the two. Jonah is specifically called by God to preach a message of doom to the people of Nineveh, the ancient capital of Assyria. Jonah decides he's going to go his own way instead of God's way. And so he heads 2,000 miles in the other direction and gets on board a ship bound for Tarshish. Once he's on board, he goes down into the ship. That word down is characteristic in chapter 1 of Jonah's lifestyle going his own way, the wrong way from God. He goes down in the ship and falls asleep. Meanwhile, God hurls, like a baseball pitcher throwing a pitch, hurls a storm on the Mediterranean Sea. And these seasoned sailors that we now find questioning Jonah are scared to death, even though they've been experts in their careers. And they've been through many storms. They cry out to their individual false gods, their idols. And then the captain wakes Jonah up and says, Hey, we, we got to talk. You need to be praying too, to your God, whoever that is. Verse 6. Now we come to verse 7. And it says, Each man said to his mate, Come, let us cast lots, so we may learn on whose account this calamity has struck us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. A lot fell on Jonah. These sailors are being stirred up about the why of all of this terror around them. All this trouble. They no doubt believed what many people today still believe and that is that if you're a bad person, bad things are going to happen to you and to people that are close to you. So they have lots of questions They want to know, first of all, who's responsible for this devastating storm. Look at verse 8. They said to him, to Jonah, tell us now, on whose account has this calamity struck us? What they really want is safety, of course, and justice. If somebody on board that ship is guilty of some wrongdoing that's brought the storm on them from the gods They want to know who that is. They want justice. They want the guilty party punished if need be. So they do what many ancient people did back then. They roll the dice. It's called casting lots here in our text. Those lots may have been something like dice that were rolled and had names of people on them perhaps in this case. Or they may have been stones that... Uh, were sometimes yes or no stones in in certain cases, and in other times they had people's names on the stones. And the stones would be shaken in a cup and dropped into the lap one at a time. And that would identify a person who maybe was worthy of honor or who was guilty of some wrongdoing. Proverbs 16.33 says, "...the lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord." Solomon wants to remind us in that verse that we may think we reach a decision by rolling the dice or stones that are cast into the lap, but really it's God who ultimately is in control. He's the sovereign God of the universe. And today we don't need dice or the roll of stones or some Las Vegas gambler to tell us what God's will is. We have the written Word of God Genesis to Revelation, the complete Word of God. And we have, as believers, the indwelling Holy Spirit who guides us and helps us understand what God's will is in matters that pertain to us, like our walk with God, or our service, our ministry for Him. An example of believers in the New Testament using lots is found in Acts chapter 1. You can read it for yourselves. In verses 23 to 26, if you're taking notes, you can jot that reference down and look it up later. But in that particular instance, you might remember that the disciples, the apostles, were looking for a replacement for Judas Iscariot, who had betrayed Jesus and committed suicide. And so they were casting lots. They had two names before them. Justice Barsabbas, or Joseph Barsabbas, called Justice and a man named Matthias. So they cast lots. They were seeking God's will in the matter and the lot fell on Matthias. The text says he was numbered then with the eleven. Became one of the apostles in the early church. So by God's direction, that lot fell on Matthias. And in the same way, even though these were unbelievers who were casting lots on the ship, God saw to it that the lot fell on the guilty party, Jonah. So now they know. They know who the culprit is. And they begin firing questions at him to get to the bottom of this whole thing. Their first question in verse 8 is, on whose account has this calamity struck us? Huh? They already knew the answer, right? They cast lots. The lot fell on Jonah. They already knew the answer. Why ask the question? Because I believe they're giving Jonah the opportunity to accept responsibility or to deny any guilt. Apparently from verse 10, He had already told them that He was in the wrong and that He was going the wrong way from the presence of the Lord. Oh, it's so hard. I think you'll agree with me to admit when we're wrong, isn't it? Oh, that's hard. I often think of... uh, the character Fonzie on the old TV show Happy Days and how every once in a while when he was confronted about some wrongdoing he really struggled to get those words out of his mouth, didn't he? I was wrong. He didn't want to say it. We don't want to say it. I don't think Jonah was all that comfortable saying I was wrong. But unless we're willing to own up to our sin and our determination to walk our own way. We can't find sweet intimacy and forgiveness with God. King David of Israel found out how hard it was to walk away from God when he committed sin, adultery with Bathsheba and then made arrangements for her husband Uriah to be killed in battle. He says in Psalm 32, verses 3 and 4, when I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. So he knew that it was his sin that gave that heavy hand. But he also knew that it didn't have to be that way. So in verse 5 of Psalm 32, he says, I acknowledged my sin to thee, and In my iniquity I did not hide. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and thou dost forgive the guilt of my sin. Aren't you glad that God is a forgiving God? Think about this, none of us would even be here this morning. We wouldn't even be walking on planet Earth if God were not a forgiving God, if every time or the first time that we sinned against His holy character he zapped us. And took our lives. None of us would be here. He's a forgiving God. The Apostle John tells you and me what we need to know on this subject. 1 John one nine: If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. To confess, by the way, means to agree with God. To agree with God that I have sinned against Him. Sin doesn't affect our family status with Jesus. We don't lose our salvation because we sin. But it does affect our fellowship with Jesus. It puts a wall between us that we have created, not Him. Our sins were already paid for at Calvary, past, present, and future. But if we want to walk with God in sweet fellowship and intimate communion... And enjoy the beauty of his presence moment by moment, day by day. We need to keep sin confessed. Walking the wrong way is always hard, just like it had to have been for Jonah. And one reason for that is because we're not all that willing to say, I was wrong. So they ask him some more questions What is your occupation? The next question. Apparently he doesn't answer that one. He doesn't maybe want them to know he's a prophet of God. He never does admit that he's a prophet of God to these sailors anyway. They asks also where do you come from? He doesn't answer that either. Nor does he directly answer the question, What is your country? Instead he says, I'm a Hebrew. Not a Jew. He was a Jew. But he said, I'm a Hebrew. That's the word that non-Jews used for Jewish people back then. Hebrews. He said, I'm a Hebrew. But then, amazingly, he gives them some detail that they had not asked him about. Maybe he should have left this next part out. Notice the text with me. He says in verse 9, I'm a Hebrew and I fear the Lord God. Oh, really? He didn't fear him enough to respond with a hearty yes when God said, go to Nineveh. He didn't reverence God enough to say, God, whatever you need me to do, if you need me to go 500 miles over into Iraq, I'll do it. I'll talk to those Ninevites. Maybe he should have left that part out. I fear God. He goes on to describe, and they didn't ask about this either, but he goes on to describe God as the maker of heaven and the sea and dry land. You see, when we walk our own way, the wrong way, our theology gets messed up. I've heard people actually say to me personally that God doesn't view adultery the way He used to back in Bible times. It's interesting that the people who say that are the people who are committing adultery. (laughs) Kind of goes together, doesn't it? Our theology gets messed up. Jonah, unlike many people today, I think, believed in absolutes, especially about God. Except that he wasn't acting like it when he headed to Joppa and caught that ship to Tarshish. Or slept in the middle of the storm. And too often today, even those of us who claim that we believe in absolute truth, not relative truth, aren't acting like it. For many of us, we act like truth is relative, relative to what we want to do, the way we want to walk, the lifestyle we want to live. I'm not saying all of that to put any of us on a guilt trip on the contrary I want you to know and God wants you to know that it's possible to walk on a grace trip covered by the blood of Jesus Christ walking in fellowship with Him walking as the Apostle John puts it in 1 John 2 verse 6 walking as Jesus walked in intimate communion with the Father this little book of Jonah is big on grace we'll say more about that in a moment I personally believe that that's the primary message of the book of Jonah, is the grace of God. God's grace to some idol-worshiping sailors. God's grace to this huge city in Assyria full of sinners. Half a million people or more. And His grace to a runaway prophet from Galilee. The application? God's grace is always there for you and me. Always these sailors now become very surprised at Jonah. They're scared to death about this storm. They now understand a little bit about the reason for the storm. And in verse 10, notice it with me, they are flabbergasted. It's the only word I could think of when I was working on this message. They're flabbergasted that Jonah would do this. Look at verse 10. Then the men became extremely frightened and they said to him, how could you do this? Because he had told them that he was fleeing from the Lord and that the storm was his problem, his fault. How could you do this? How could you put our lives at stake just so you could walk your way instead of your God's way? It appears that Jonah doesn't answer that specific question. How could you do this? But he does respond to the next and final question in verse 11. What should we do with you? He does respond to that. These men seem convinced that if Jonah the offender pays up somehow, that the God of the sea would calm the storm and they could survive and get to Tarshish and get on with their lives even though now they can't get there with their precious cargo that they had to throw overboard. And I believe that many non-Christians around us are at times flabbergasted when they see or hear or read about some evangelical Christian who really screws up big time. Whether it's a TV evangelist who rants and raves about the evils of prostitution and then gets caught sleeping with a woman of the evening. Or a pastor of a mega church who preaches against homosexuality and then under pressure admits that he's been sleeping with a man. And not only that, using drugs to get high at the same time. All of that is such a horrible mockery of biblical Christianity to onlookers. Such a terrible mockery of a consistent walk with God. No wonder the unsaved world out there uses the word hypocrite of many of God's people. You may already know this, but the word hypocrite literally means play-acting. And so what many Christians are doing is playing a role on Sunday, all dressed up, going to church. But something totally different from Monday through Saturday. Anywhere in between. But I want you to know this morning, God is not surprised by our hypocrisy. He knows who we are. He knows our tendency to walk the way we want to walk. Pastor Jeff mentioned it in Sunday school this morning. I'll refer to it in my message. The hymn writers right on when he says, Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. We're so like that. God knows us better than we could ever know ourselves. But that is exactly where His grace meets our groanings where His salvation saves us from sin and where Jesus offers joy right at the point of our need. And as I said, I think that's what this book is all about. So secondly this morning, let's talk about the much more abounding grace of God. Verse 12, Jonah says to them, Pick me up and throw me in the sea. Then the sea will be calm for you, for I know that on account of me this great storm has come upon you. However, the men rode desperately to return to land, but they could not, for the sea was becoming even stormier against them. Then, notice it, they called on the Lord. Jonah knows that he's the guilty one. That their lives are jeopardized by his wayward walk from God. So he says, just throw me overboard. He could have said, think about this, he could have said, you know what? I'll just get up on the side of the ship and I'll just jump in. But I really believe he didn't want to compound his earlier sin of rebellion with, the, within his mind, the sin of suicide. He's out in the middle of the Mediterranean Sea. There's no way he's going to swim to shore. He's going to die. But he didn't want them responsible. That could have been his attitude. But instead he says, you guys pick me up, throw me overboard. Well, they didn't want to do that. They tried rowing and rowing and rowing and try to keep the ship going and it's not going well. It's getting worse, in fact. I thought about this as I read about their striving to row the ship. They didn't want to throw Jonah overboard. They thought more of Jonah and his life than he thought of theirs. Right? And even though Jonah didn't want to go to Nineveh, in part because he didn't think the Ninevites were worthy of God's grace, God uses this terrible time out there on the sea to draw these unbelieving, idol-worshipping sailors to a knowledge of the true God. I love this. This is a major transformation that only God can bring about as I believe those sailors lives were transformed from deep down in their souls through this whole experience sometimes when death is staring us in the face that's when we finally realize I need to be right with God some people question deathbed conversions I don't I've been there at the bedside of someone dying who needs Jesus and some of them have trusted him some have not I think it's biblical that people can accept Jesus at the last possible moment. You know how? Because in Luke chapter 23, while Jesus was on the cross with thieves on either side of him, one of them said in Luke 23 verse 42, "This man has done nothing wrong." Nothing. And then he said to Jesus in that verse, "Please remember me when you come into your kingdom." And Jesus' response in Luke 23:43 was Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. That's a deathbed conversion. Death cross conversion. And I believe these men got right with God. God is so full of grace. It just keeps coming and coming and coming. Do you need God's grace today? Yes, you do. And so do I. But the wonderful thing is it's there. He doesn't withhold it. I'm glad for that. I hope you are. He's not stingy with His grace. He's not demanding with His grace. You have to do this, 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 and this. And then maybe. No. He just pours it out. We sang it earlier. And now many of us can testify with joy, my chains are gone. I've been set free. He's ransomed me. When we are dependent only on Jesus' work on the cross to make us right with God, anyone, anyone, no matter their past, can find a major transformation like these men found. Notice with me, if you will, that in verse 5, They cried out to their little g gods. They were idol worshippers. In verse 14, now it says they called on the Lord. In most of our Bibles, that word Lord is all in capitals. And that means it's to represent one of the most sacred names of God in the Bible the Hebrew name Yahweh, the Lord of the universe, master of everything. They call him now Lord, Yahweh. That word, that name was so sacred to Orthodox Jews and some of them still today that they won't pronounce it or write it. But these men are calling on the Lord. They believe that he is the sovereign God of the universe. Verse 16. They take another step of initial faith by reverencing God for who He is, the Lord. They offer a sacrifice. They make vows. I wondered about those vows. I wondered if the vow sounded something like this. And I'm not trying to put words in their mouth, and it's not in the text. But maybe their vow was something like this. Sovereign God of the universe, we now realize who You are. And if You will get us to Tarshish, we will tell everybody about you. Hmm. Think of it. The God of the Bible loves the people of Tarshish too. He wants them to be right with Him too. And now, just maybe, He's got a whole ship full of witnesses, character witnesses, about the character of God. Wouldn't that be awesome? Wouldn't that have been neat to be able to go to the city of Tarshish and follow those guys around and hear them testify about the sovereign God that they had come to know? They experienced, and so did Jonah firsthand, what Paul writes about in Romans 5, verse 20. Where sin did abound, grace did much more abound. Think about what would happen in town after town, Preston, Franklin, Dayton, wherever, all those towns around us within a reasonable radius, if us, if we and all other true believers in this area really walked with God in an intimate relationship with Him, if we walked in a manner worthy, seeking to please Him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, Colossians 1 verse 10. Many of us have been praying for quite some time now that a thousand people from Cache Valley would come to know Jesus as Savior. You believe God can do that? I know He can. And He may want to use you and me and our walk with Him as a testimony to those very thousand people. Some of us in the prayer room this past year prayed through the entire Bear Valley telephone book name after name after name we didn't know these people most of them but guess who does know them <laughs> God knows all about them and he wants to draw them to himself and he wants to use you and me now we come to verse 17 in the matter of the great fish I called it in your outline monster transportation I'm not going to take the time this morning to detail all the arguments against a fish swallowing a man. Some people sadly reject the book of Jonah and even the entire Bible based on just this one verse because they're convinced that there's no way there's some fish big enough to swallow a whole man and then spit him out later. Here are the facts there are fish and sea mammals large enough to swallow a person or a large animal. There have been people, only a few for sure, who have been swallowed by a great fish and have survived it. The text says God appointed a great fish for this very purpose. Look at that. Verse 17 in the New American Standard Bible, the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah. God could have created some mammal, some huge fish, but I don't believe He did. I believe He appointed one that was already swimming in the, in the sea, in the Mediterranean. He appointed one to save Jonah's life. What does that mean, He appointed? I don't know for sure, but it may mean that God said to this fish, God controls everything, right? That God said to this fish, I've got a job for you. I want you to take off right now. Gave him the GPS coordinates. I want you to go to this spot. There's going to be this man that's been thrown overboard off the ship. I want you to swallow him. And when I tell you, then I want you to barf him up on land. <laughs> I really believe that may be what happened. Appointed. It's an interesting word. Assigned, it might be another way to put it. That he assigned this huge fish to be at that very spot at that moment. Why? To spare Jonah's life. Is that grace or what? Of course it is. How far down, remember that key word in chapter one, down, how far down would Jonah have gone eventually after trying to dog paddle a while? How far down would he have gone if God had not assigned this great fish to go swallow him? Well, I did a little research. It's not critical to the story, but the average depth in the Mediterranean Sea is almost 5,000 feet, almost a mile. There's one trench in the Mediterranean Sea that's among the deepest spots in all of the oceans. goes over 17,000 feet deep. That may not be where Jonah was, but if you can't swim or you can't swim for very long... If it's just over your head, you're going to drown. God sent that fish to spare him. God in His grace assigned that fish to swallow Jonah before he had to take his last breath. Could a man really live inside of a sea creature for three days and three nights, it says. Well, I don't know for sure, except he did. So, <laughs> what the text says. So-called experts tell us that a fish's stomach juices and the lack of oxygen would have brought about Jonah's death within the first 15 or up to 24 hours. But such experts aren't factoring in the miracle power of God. If God could keep Daniel's three friends from even smelling like smoke when they were thrown into a fiery furnace... And if God could keep Daniel himself from being eaten alive by very hungry lions, God could certainly preserve Jonah in a miracle way and enable him to not only not have his skin damaged, but be able to breathe inside that fish. God could do that. He must have stayed alive in there because he prayed to God from inside the fish. We'll look at his prayer next week in chapter 2. But for today, here's the truth. The absolute truth about our character, about our witness for Jesus Christ. Again, notice it in your notes. Our character, your character and mine. Our witness will either be enhanced by the consistency of our walk with God or extinguished by the carelessness of walking our own way. Jonah's witness was clearly not a positive one. But God was gracious to keep him alive and give him a second chance. He also kept alive the men who had worked so hard to keep Jonah alive. And if God gave Jonah a second chance, and if God gave grace to the people of Nineveh, He'll give you and me grace. He'll give us second and third and 49 chances when we've messed up as well. His grace will much more abound to you and me. But He wants our lights to shine. That's why we're here. Matthew 5.16 says, So let your, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. The purpose of living a godly life and walking in a consistent walk with the Lord is not so people will say, oh, Bill's a great guy. It's so that they'll say, God is a great God. Look what He's done in transforming that guy. That's what it's all about. The word so in that verse, let your light so shine, means literally let your light shine in such a way And we're challenged by Jesus himself to shine our lights like a city set on a hill instead of under a bushel basket. When our kids were little, we had family devotions every night, and I would often read to them from children's Bible story books. There was a whole series of those books that was set to poetry, kind of like a Christian version of Dr. Seuss. It would tell some Bible story with some flair. My personal favorite, and I think the kids' favorite, was a story called The Unforgiving Servant. I loved it because I could change my voice for different characters in the story and alter the volume, which sometimes scared the kids and most of the time excited them. I love to tell that story. I still do. I'd quote it for you this morning if I had the time. But here's something that's even better to ponder to love, to tell the story of Jesus and His love. That's what God wants us to do. That's why we're here in this area of Idaho and Utah. A couple of questions I have for you as we close and for myself. Am I just playing a role? Play acting? Or do my voice and my actions really show that I am walking consistently with Jesus? No one's perfect. I'm not saying a perfect walk. I'm saying a consistent walk with Jesus. Or have I allowed my own sinful desires and my own walk in the wrong direction to extinguish the flame of both my passion and and my light that should be shining out there to the lost. Well, take heart today if that second question applies to you. Take heart. God's grace will much more abound to you. He'll give you another chance. I don't know about you, but I'm glad for that. Would you pray with me for a moment? Father, thank You for another chance and another chance, and another chance. Not just to get our act together, but to get in touch with You and have an intimate fellowship with You through Your Word and through prayer and through the fellowship of God's people. And to be able to be a light to a very dark world. God, I know that I don't always shine as brightly as I could, nor does anyone here. But I am thankful that in Your grace You give us another chance to shine, to walk like Jesus walked. So Lord, may we have such a walk with You that we will say with our closing song, I love to tell the story of Jesus and His love. And I ask it in His wonderful name. Amen. Would you stand and sing that great old hymn with me this morning? I love to tell the story.
1: I love to tell the story of unseen things above. Of Jesus and His glory, of Jesus and His love, I love to tell the story, because I know tis true. It satisfies my longings. As nothing else can do. I love to tell the story. T'will be my theme in glory. To tell the old, old story Of Jesus and His love I love to tell the story Tis pleasant to repeat What seems each time I tell it ...more wonderfully sweet. I love to tell the story... ...for some have never heard... ...the message of salvation... ...from God's own holy word. I love to tell the story... T'will be my theme in glory to tell the old, old story of Jesus and His love. To tell the old, old story of Jesus and His love. Amen. You can tell that uh, message
0: somewhere today or this week, and God will use you. He'll give you a chance, many chances, if you want to take them to tell others about His love. Have a great week. God bless you. We'll see you next Sunday.